Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. And uh, we've got a VIP guest today, so I'm very excited mm. to welcome um, Ashlyn Hilliard. Ashlyn is the Director of Events at the International Cultic Studies Association, ICSA. Mm-hmm. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Ashlyn. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, you two. It's a pleasure to be on. It's great. It's yeah. great to have you on. I mean, I I, um, I see you as the face of the International Cultic Studies Association because uh, mm-hmm. you're the person that um, everybody sort of liaises with and deals with when we have anything to do with um, the association. So it's really great to, to be able to talk to you properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, Ashlyn, you could tell us a little bit about yourself, um, how you ended up being interested in this in this area, in this space. Sure. Um, well, first off, I'd like to say that I'm flattered um, that you see <laughs> the face. Hopefully I'm a good face. You know, I want Absolutely. to be an approachable face, so to speak, <laughs> for people. I want to be a safe face. Um, so safe safe face, safe space, as they say. Uh, so as long as it's that, um, I've always wanted to be that for people. Cool. So thank you um, for your kind words. Um, like Stephen said, uh, my name is Ashlyn. I am currently the director of events for the International Cultic Studies Association, also known as ICSA. I live in Portland, Oregon, USA. Um, I'm really enjoying life out here in the Pacific Northwest. I work remotely full time with ICSA. Um, prior to my work with ICSA, I was working in my home state of Utah um, in the Salt Lake City Valley. And I was helping women, children, um, and young men who were fleeing polygamous communities out west. Um, so helping those leaving the FLDS, um, for example, the Kingston group, um, just helping them get in, uh, establish themselves and sort of integrate into society um, after leaving some of these really um, intense groups. So just supporting them as best I could. Um, Through that process, I was giving presentations on polygamy and helping those leaving these groups and what all that entailed. And I spoke um, at an International Cultic Studies Association conference back in Philadelphia. I think it was the 2018 annual conference that was in Philadelphia. That was the first time I spoke. Um, And I guess I was one of the youngest speakers to ever speak at a annual conference. Um, This was, you know, several years ago now, and um, I'm only 26 currently. (laughs) Um, And so that piqued a lot of people's interest in getting to know me more. Um, And the director contacted me and wanted to know about the work that I was doing in Utah. And, um, Around that same time, a job position opened up and I applied um, for the current position. And that's how I ended up where I am now. 
Um, in addition to my work with ICSA, I also help run a local um, meetup, uh, community support um, for those in Portland, Oregon who have left high control cultic environment and spiritually abusive settings. And it's called the Spiritual Abuse Forum for Education Meetup, also known as SAFE. And I just love being a um, active voice and safe space for those in the community. And I'd love to support people all along in their journeys. So I help co-organize that and I just purely volunteer um, with founder Ken Garrett. And um, on top of that, I just completed my <laughs> MST. <laughs> it goes on. But um, I just completed my uh, master's in science yeah. and psychology of course of control from the University of Salford. So um, yeah. I'm very happy to have, I've been very busy during this pandemic, but I'm very happy to have um, completed my master's. So sounds brilliant. Definitely want to ask you all about that, actually. Um, yeah. That's um, that's a, a master's program that I only found out about after I'd finished, well, just nearly finished my master's that I did. And it was kind of one of those moments when you think, shucks, you know, I wish I'd seen that one uh, earlier because that really looked uh, down my street but um, so definitely want to want to know about that and um, some of our listeners sure. may also be interested in doing that so um yeah i want to talk about that um what about your background ashlyn you um you grew up in a um a particular religious background which of, i guess is has informed some of your thinking so uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that if that's okay yeah um and thanks for bringing that up i um completely failed to mention that with my laundry <laughs> list of items <laughs> Um, so personally, I was um, born and raised in the um, Churches of Christ is what they're known as. Um, there's many different types of Churches of Christ and right. movements and offshoots. Um, I uh, was born and raised in a particular sect of the Church of Christ known as the Campbell Stone Movement, which came out of the Second Great Awakening in the United States. Um, it was a restorationist movement. Um, it, you know, by restorationists, I mean, it was kind of coming up in an era where there was the allure of the great American frontier, you know, going out west. Um, and it was also sort of popping up in regions around the same time as Mormonism was coming to the scene with Joseph Smith um, yeah. way back when in the early period of the United States. So that is actually um, what I came from. It was just a very conservative form of Christianity. In a nutshell, right. um, they this particular group um, took many scriptures very literally in the Bible. Um, there was a fear of hell, uh, for example. Um, they used a specific mechanism, specific hermeneutical method in way which to interpret the scriptures. So it was called the Sini approach, um, command, example, necessary inference. So we essentially had a framework in which we were supposed to interpret scriptures by, um, yeah. which can be problematic, of course. Um, with any religious documents, they tried to solve the question of, we actually can have the same interpretation. We can agree upon the same things by using this framework. Right. Um, so it was a very um, thought reforming process, um, which mm. is really interesting to come out of and deconstruct. So that's my background. Yeah. Cool. How, how big is that, that group, um, Ashlyn? Fairly, fairly small. Um, the most active like Church of Christ breakoff is probably the um, Institutional Churches of Christ, otherwise known as the Boston Movement. More of like the Kit McKean, uh, charismatic leader, 
run. Um, our group did not have a charismatic leader at the helm. Instead, mm -hmm. it was this sort of scriptural, this method of interpreting scriptures that served as almost this leadership. So mm -hmm. what I try to bring to the conversation surrounding ICSA and those who were born and raised in groups is um, you, you may not have had a cult leader. You may not have yeah. had a leader who was running this group and that's okay. And you can feel valid in your experience and understand that control can exist and originate in many different forms. Um, for me, it was, this is how you have to interpret the Bible. Um, and that in itself really took over my thoughts, my everyday actions. And if I didn't interpret the scripture the way I was supposed to, by using this framework, um, I was scared for my soul. Um, so I just really try to bring that into the conversation mm -hmm. of coercive control can exist um, in the form of spiritual abuse, um, really. Yeah. So it's yeah. not always from this charismatic leader as gets talked about very often um, within the field. So, I think that's really interesting. With, with this kind of like giving you a, a framework to use, um, I imagine that the idea is it's created in such a way that you all come to the same conclusions. Um, Correct. So is it, is it they correct? try to yeah. eliminate everyone's... Yeah, the, the founders of the movement, Alexander um, Campbell, Martin W. Stone, way back when, they the intentions seemed really good on the surface level. The intentions was to essentially unify people around the scripture um, in order. I mean, they came up around the time during the restoration when so many groups and sects and leaders were popping up saying, this is how we can interpret that. There was a lot of confusion around that time. And they were trying to like, from what I'm, from what I've read about the history around that time, they were trying to unify Christians by saying we have a solution for all the different um, ways that you're thinking about the scripture. But of course, that can be extremely problematic, um, extremely problematic. It was also during the time where um, John Locke's uh, common sense um, sort of perspective was taking hold as well. There was a lot of influence from that. Um, they wanted to this is a quote, simplify the scriptures down to a way that all man can understand, um, which can take away the beauty surrounding a lot of religious documents, if you think about it. So while, I, while the intention was perhaps to unify people, it um, has done the opposite over the years, certainly. It's really interesting. I, um, I recognize that a lot of that actually. Um, so I, I don't know if you're aware, but I, my background is I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. So mm -hmm. I'm I'm third generation or was third generation um, Jehovah's Witness, and um, you know the the point you make there about not having a charismatic leader that's something that I always mention. You know the the governing body. Um, I mean the, the orig originator may have been charismatic. I don't know, but um, by the time yeah you know I I was around um, the governing body who are the leadership are about as charismatic as a sock you know they um they have they have no charisma um they're boring men in suits you know that's that's it sure. and, um, uh, they say the odd weird strange thing and um and obviously um have some what i would say are quite odd beliefs but um they're not charismatic in any way but um so yeah i think that's a really important point um it's often i think um misunderstood that con coercive controlling groups you know don't always have to have a charismatic leader they they can use other other methods 
I think it's so interesting to point out that with a group like Jehovah's Witnesses, there's this denominationalism sense. You do have a governing body. You have sort of this set of leaders. Same as within Mormonism, you have this quorum of apostles and, you know, you have this like leadership in the group that I came from. We were considered to be non-denominational. And what that means is that there was no sort of governing body. Every church was autonomous. Um, But what's so interesting about that is they were each united by the use of this framework. So the existence of a governing body almost didn't need to happen. Um, And that led to some churches perhaps utilizing the framework to more of an extreme than others. So some churches could have been more spiritually abusive. Others may have been more sort of liberal in their approach of this uh, framework. And so it's hard. Like, I don't want to like bunch all the churches together by talking about this because they are all so um, autonomously run at the Mm. same time. They're really unified by the use of this um, thought reforming. So it even reminds me of, um, you know, we were asking a guest that we had on that was used to be Amish. um, Oh, yeah. About, yeah, there's the whole um, situation like control and do they find it to be a controlling group? Um, And I know that one of the things was that um, they're all they can all be really different each sort of group yes um, of like Amish communities but then there's like an overarching system that you're meant to all be following to, but mm-hmm. to the degrees to which is different so some people will allow bikes whereas some people think bikes are too far some people think, think horses are too right. far um, mm-hmm. but that in itself won't um, that's like down to each individual group and community yeah, yeah it's, it's fascinating the overlap with the, mm. all these different the, these groups all look so completely different um, on the outside but having a lot of similarities when you start unpacking and that sort of thing yeah um I, we like to get into the weeds um on this podcast so um i, I don't know whether you you know it might trigger you talk about it but i'd like to know more about this seni um, methodology so it's command example necessary inference is the um mm-hmm. is is what it stands for so could you are you able to give me kind of an example or give us an example of, of what, um, so a passage in the sure. scriptures, um, how would, how would the, the church use that framework to interpret it? Sure. Um, yes. And a very good example of this and this framework being applied surrounds the topic of instrumental worship. So this particular Christian group, you know, most, I'd say the majority of Christian churches worship with instruments. They sing hymns with a use of a guitar, or maybe they have a band. Um, It's not that uncommon. Um, But for this, for the church that I came out of, um, it actually, the question surrounding the use of instruments in worship is highly controversial um, because they see the New Testament as symbolizing the new law. um, And because there is no explicit example in the new testament so that's the e the uh the e in the framework example because there's no explicit example in the new testament of jesus playing a guitar while or someone playing a guitar leading a church service they look at churches that do use that as they are trying to add an addition to the scriptures and that's wrong Hmm. and some churches go so far to say churches who utilize instruments their souls are at risk because they're adding something to the Bible, to the text that never existed in the first place. So it seems quite extreme and it Mm. can be in some churches. 
um, especially in the South, um, in the American South, it can really be taken to that extreme of, um, you know, we can't visit this Baptist church because they have instruments in worship. And like they, that could be a heaven or hell issue for some people within the church. Not everyone. um, But for me growing up in the churches that I did, instruments were never allowed. It was that sort of strict adherence. Um, And it's interesting because there are examples of instruments used in the New Testament back um, all the way in Revelation, for example. Also trumpets. Um, Yeah, the trumpets, the harps, you know, the angels coming down with the harps. Mm. But because that's not specifically in the context of, you know, Jesus's followers are gathered in a room and someone pulls out a harp and they start to sing because it's not specifically in that context. They say that that would be an addition and we don't want to add to the Bible. We don't want to add to the sacred text of what's already been presented. So then if you wanted to get into the weeds further, (laughs) so I know you said you like to get into the weeds. (laughs) There's questions then of, well, if you apply such strict, um, logic surrounding this issue of instruments what about you know the money used to buy a powerpoint projector Mm. for the church Mm. what about money being used to turn on air conditioning there's some examples in scripture Mm. about church finances going towards buying a projector for like a sermon or you know heating or cooling the building on a sunday electric lights for that matter yeah so it's kind of like where Mm. where does the so on some issues there's this just clear, explicit, extreme. And then on other issues, it's like, well, we kind of just use common sense, you know? And (laughs) so you can kind of see how this causes tension in the church um, as to what's God, what God's authority has and has not commanded of us according to the scriptures. Um, So I hope that gives you a somewhat Mm, good example of understanding yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so what what's the um, the theology in terms of? So you mentioned about hell there. I guess I guess um, that there's a belief in going to heaven for the good people um, when they die, and uh, hell for the bad people. Is that the traditional image of hell? You know, burning fire and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Is that yeah? Oh yeah, yeah. It's a pretty literal well, interpretation mm. of hell. Um, that sounds really frightening. How did, um, how did you feel about that when you were growing up? Um, you know, the more I've kind of been talking lately about this with my partner, but we kind of realized just how much we were disassociating as kids in a church setting, um, hearing these sermons, um, actually looking back, I felt like I would cry a lot in the car going to church and I didn't understand where those emotions were necessarily coming from. But I was just so not happy to be there in that environment. Um, There were times when I would just go to the bathroom and just stay in there just to like get away Mm. from that. It's a hard conversation for a young person to think and talk um, about death and hell and, Mm. you know, Jesus on the cross. These are very hard conversations um, that are painted in such sort of literalist um, ways So it was hard. And I think to make it harder, and I think the hardest part for me was to look out into the broader community, look at my friends, look at all the people who I surrounded myself with and internally fear that they were going to hell because their church uses instruments or their church isn't a church of Christ or X, Y, Z. And that for me was the most devastating part. Definitely. 
I think it makes sense what you're saying about disassociating as well, just because, um, I mean, I remember when, uh, well, I've been, no, I don't remember, I've been told the story of um, when uh, we, like, as a family had left and then some, you know, um, my mum saying to someone, like, how can you cope, like, looking at us all as, like, a family and thinking, you're going, you know, you're not, you're not going to make it to heaven. Or like, um, you know, in JW speak, you're, you know, you're going to die, yeah. mm. die at Armageddon, you know, right. which is their version of, I guess, like the hell aspect in that it's, you know, as terrifying um, to talk about like, how, how can you look at us and see that? And I, I don't think they necessarily at that point, you know, was, as were looking at us and seeing that just because, yeah, if you were every time, that would be awful. Like it would be, it it would, it's, your brain kind of separates you. Um, yeah, we talk about cognitive dissonance a lot, don't we, Dad? Mm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you go to the shops, the supermarkets, or the hypermarket, or you go into town or whatever, and you know, all those people there—they're all going to die soon at Armageddon, or yeah. you know, for you, yeah. they're all going to burn in hell shortly. You know, it's a—it's a pretty horrific um, thing, isn't it? So I think, when, yeah, when you do child, separate not, it, don't you? You've mm. not um, maybe got to that point. <laughs> um, you know, it's all still. As, mm. as, you know children do take things to heart don't they they do really listen to yeah. those adults that are telling you things you believe them don't you so um yeah i can imagine you know we want to talk more about um kids don't we on and the impacts of this sort of stuff but yeah i mean our, our podcast we tend to focus quite a lot on um the exact the experience of people growing up in the religion i think or the not just religions but cults in general but uh, i think it's mainly religions for young people um because i don't know about you ashlyn but um a lot of the literature seems to be directed towards people who get in inverted commas sucked into cults and how does that happen and so on but there's this huge tranche of people like you and i that that uh, grew up in it you know yeah, absolutely. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Jehovah's Witness, you know, a lot of the origins surrounding that uh, were also in the Restoration. Yeah. Mm. I think yeah. so. I mean, we didn't use that language, but it, um, uh, Charles Taze Russell was a, um, a kind of, I think he was Methodist in his background, but um, mm-hmm. um, Pennsylvania he, he hailed from. Um, but yeah, it was around the same sort of time. I think his the the, yeah. the roots of this is in Millerism, really. You know, and the whole. Um, so one of the one thing I was going to ask you about your background was: um, did you have any of this kind of time prophecies and stuff that um, Jehovah's Witnesses have? So um, Jehovah's Witnesses come from this tradition where they're always waiting for Armageddon to come, and there's these time prophecies mm. that that they're counting from you know, various prophecies in the Bible saying, oh, you know, it's going to come in 1914 or it's going to come in whatever. So did you have any of that or was it much more grounded in everyday life? It was much more grounded. There wasn't so much um, prophecies, like taking prophecies in a very literal sense. Of course, like Mm. Revelation would be dived into, but there was sort of this respect uh, for the imagery, for the, you know, there was kind of this sense that um, we don't know when the end is coming, but we know it's coming. But that was kind of as far as it was. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there was okay. this sense of like the end is coming. Right. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses refer to it as an Armageddon. Um, mm. We, our group referred to it as a second coming. You know, it's all kind of the same um, things, even though there's different language. But there wasn't like any sort of predicted method in which there was a countdown. Uh, okay. I mean, of yeah. course, there was the, the scripture talks about um, here are the signs, yes. you know, of like uh, world events. And, and of course, 
you know, in any generation, you can say, well, the signs are happening, you know, clearly. Um, So I think, you know, for people who are more in the um, extremist end time prophecy uh, ways of things, they may personally believe that. But as far Mm -hmm. as the group, they certainly believe that there is an end times, but there's not a they're not predicting or counting right. down or okay. there isn't that time pressure like there is within the Jehovah's witnesses. I'd say. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they've, they've kind of been wrong so many times now that I think they're, um, they're starting to become a bit vaguer about when the end's coming, but, um, mm. but still, yeah, it's still it coming, just around though. the corner. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, co- it's always, it's, it's always coming. <laughs> it's coming. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's genuinely frightening. I mean, one of the things that we've done recently is, you know, we've been talking about how people who've just left are looking at world events as they are currently. Um, and, you know, there'll yeah. be a lot of people who genuinely start to feel terrified about that because they think that this is it, you know, this is, this is a sign. that the end is, of, Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so it is quite it is quite worrying. Um, actually, look, I really wanted to get into your studies and, um, in particular, the, uh, the the work that you've been doing. You've just finished your dissertation. Um, so yes. I hope that went well. Fingers Yay. crossed. <laughs> Yay! Grades come back mid March, um, but I, yeah. you know, I I feel good about it. Let's hope that. Yes. <laughs> and right. I'm very excited to be done with dissertation. Um, I think yeah. anyone who gets to that end point, they're just, you know, so excited Absolutely. to be done. But it's great when you've done it, and then you're proud of it because you can you can keep yes. reading it, and it, it looks yes. great after you've done it. So yeah. Um, so tell us a bit about the course, if you don't mind. So um, this is the course at Salford or University of Salford, I think it is, um, mm-hmm. which is a master's in the psychology of coercive control. Um, yes. So what, what sort of stuff did you study on that um, on that program? Yeah, um, it's the topics that were discussed and talked about in the approach of the program are some of my most favorite um, things about this field in general. And you're really getting into and studying the complexities of not only why people join groups, but why they stay in group systems and what ultimately may cause someone to leave or depart. And then as an additive to that, we looked at psychological approaches to helping someone who have experienced um, course of controlling systems or relationships. So the program not only looks at that in the context of cults, uh, because we talked about groups uh, more broadly, but also its parallel interests such as human trafficking, uh, terrorism, um, and gangs, um, because so many of these patterns um, can just almost be textbook within these different course controlling environments. And it's really important to ask these questions, um, no matter which domain of course control you're really dealing with. So that's kind of a, a broad overview of what the program focuses on. Right. Really interesting. Um, I was watching one of your um, presentations recently, which was really interesting. And you talked about a framework that I thought I'd ask you about, which is um, sure. the Johnston and Boyle framework, the, the power yeah. threat meaning framework. I thought that's really interesting. I haven't come across that uh, personally. So um, it's something we're definitely going to talk about more because I think it's really, really interesting. But maybe you could explain what that is and how that, that applies to coercive groups or cultic groups. 
Sure. Um, the power threat meaning framework, also known as a PTM. Um, so if I say PTM for short, that's uh, what I'm talking about. But yeah. the power threat meaning framework is extremely interesting. Um, and it basically summarizes and integrates a great deal of evidence about the role of various kinds of power in people's lives, but also the kinds of threats that the misuse of power poses um, and how we've learned to respond to said threats. Um, so I, you know, I love to use it as almost a psychoeducational tool. Um, it, in the presentation that you watched, Stephen, um, I titled it, It's Hard to Put Into Words, yeah. Understanding My Experiences with Spiritual Abuse. And I feel like Whenever survivors leave groups, we often ask the question, you know, what happened to us? Why am I here? Why am I feeling this way? Our brains almost feel tangled. And what I feel like this framework does and why I like to use it as a educational tool um, to show people is that this framework really breaks down where the sources of course of control were coming from in your own yeah. story, um, but also how you can take that knowledge and how you can look at the ways you responded to said threats, how that could be an empowering thing for you. Mm. Um, because so often survivors, of course, who control, they feel guilty. You know, they can't believe they reacted certain ways in those situations. Um, and what I like to use the power threat meaning framework for is essentially give survivors their power back. You know, this is why you responded this way to said threats. You know, it's a very logical response. And to me, and what that highlighted for me and what I hope others is it highlights strength. It highlights the strength of people who are in cults or course controlling situations. It highlights that, look, not everyone can get through what you went through in a mm -hmm. cultic group. You have so much strength and surviving that experience. And so I kind of like to use said framework to really sort of turn these ideas of, well, I can't believe that, you know, I was afraid, I complied, I obeyed, all these things that survivors may see as um, weaknesses. I like to turn that into strength um, for them through the use of this framework. That's a, that's a really useful way of thinking about it, isn't it? Um, I mean, this this whole question about power, I think, is really interesting. It's something that um, I've talked about on some of our discussions, um, and I've used um, French and Raven's power bases or bases of power, which um, a bit of a different. It's more for organisational, um, you know, analysis, but. I think with cults or with high control groups, one of the, the things that makes them such is their use of power and that sure. they um, they manage to become the almost the sole source of power within that organization. So most organizations, although there might be somebody at the top, let's say, or a, a, a team of leaders, um, that's normal in organizations, but there's still power distributed throughout the organization. So you might get some people who are just really expert at what they do and they've got some power and then the workers themselves, they've got power because they can down tools if they want to. Whereas in a cult, um, you don't get any of that, any of that distribution. It's all concentrated right. within the leadership, which I think is really interesting. How do you see power um, deployed in your experience and in what you've seen within cults? Yeah. Um, well, through my experience specifically, power, instead of 
And what I highlighted in this presentation um, that you mentioned, Stephen, power for me in my experience didn't necessarily originate from a person. No. And for a lot of people in controlling environments, that may be the case. Um, it could be an abuser, a person, a charismatic yeah. individual, narcissist. Um, certainly that can exist. But from my experience, power more so originated from the um, the intense value that this scriptural interpretation held over believers. Hmm. That was powerful. And the guilt that I would feel in not using what I was supposed to utilize on a day-to-day -day basis to interpret, you know, to, hmm. to believe in what I believe, to go to the church that I believed in, that was the way in which power was exhibited. Um, and that, that was really damaging for me. Um, and I think, you know, the, I do a lot of, um, you know, I, of course I'm meeting people in the community who have been, um, abused, spiritually abused, or, um, you know, may have been involved in a cult. And it's very interesting how, you know, power can be implemented in so many different forms. And that's kind of what I enjoy highlighting in this field. Like I mentioned, um, you know, I think, with the cultic studies field in general, there's a sort of binary understanding of like a cult leader mm. <laughs> or like a set yeah, of elders yeah. or like a, but mm. I guess I love bringing in the conversation. Like here's so many ways that power can exist. I mean, with the rise, for example, of internet cults, uh, such as like QAnon, having such a hold on people, of course there can be different levels of leadership and power. Um, but so much power is through uh, the chat rooms you know, the, the, the social group, the community involvement, yeah. the pressure. Um, and so just looking at how power can exist in different formats, I think it'd be really eye-opening to people mm -hmm. um, and can be a great educational tool to show them like, you know, how to be wary of their situations and mm. how to maybe look for um, abusive power dynamics in their everyday yeah. life. Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, what it what it comes down to, I guess, um, uh, and I, I'd like to to maybe you could tell us about the, the way that power was exerted over you personally. But I mean, for me, you know, the I I couldn't go to university when I when I left school. I mean, in theory, mm -hmm. it was possible, but you would essentially have to be a rebel, you know, to do it, and um, that there wasn't really any opportunity to do that. So education was limited, um, career was limited. Yeah. So your choices are limited, um, what you're, you can do and who you're going to be and all of you're that. You're observed by not just, I mean, I know for you, Dad, you said like you, at least as a, when you were younger, you felt like you felt God's omnipotence or at least the belief yeah. that that yeah. was happening. Um, yeah. But also the omnipotence of the community because mm. you're very mm -hmm. infrequently alone when I think about it in terms of even like you said, when you're dating somebody, you don't spend time alone with each other. Um, mm. You don't, yes. um, you, yeah. you're walking on root calls generally with another person, you know, you're group, you're buddied up so that you're always mm. keeping an eye on each other. Everyone's keeping an eye on each other, making sure, you know, mm. oh, did you see that sister, what her name had a skirt this short or, you know, did you see yeah. that she was wearing this mm. nail polish or he was um, going to visit her? Or, you know, there's all this like monitoring. So there's like, yeah, the power of this God figure, but also the power yeah. of the community monitoring. So you yep. think you're constantly in watch and you kind of, you, you know, to a certain extent you are, your family's you in are. it, your friends yeah. are in it, everybody's mm. spies. Yeah. 
Yeah. What you talk about are just all so familiar. Um, I know for me, you know, obviously modesty was a huge thing, um, especially being a woman, but uh, power, I think for women in the group, uh, their gender was impacted in the freedoms that they had in participation were impacted by said power. Uh, like yeah. you m- mentioned, Stephen, like how it really, if, if we kind of, I like your term, get into the weeds of it. Um, you know, for some congregations, a woman could teach a Bible class uh, that had men in it. But if a child, let's say he was 13, if a 13 year old boy decided to get baptized, that then implied that he could have scriptural headship authority over said teacher who's a female and that woman who's teaching the class may then have to partner with a man you know bring a man into the classroom to be there as sort of this authority you know uh figurehead or she would have to bring in a male teacher and her step out entirely Mm. and Mm. it's really heartbreaking so even with like gender uh, power affected me as a female in a conservative Christian group to a large extent. I was very outspoken. I actually loved, um, I was very into like evangelism growing up. You know, I, I, I really wanted to like do my part and share my beliefs. Um, but it was really looked down upon, um, to be such an outspoken. I mean, I was pretty much in training to become the submissive housewife. Um, Mm. and that's not me or my personality at all. (laughs) And, (laughs) <laughs> it's so focused on having children, you know, as well in the group and raising kids and um, things like that. I'm also a queer. So like that was a huge issue within the church, um, LGBTQ people, the way that they were talked about and looked at and mm-hmm. things. So yeah, gender, sexuality, for me, those were some of the most major components that were impacted. Um, and that is actually what kind of inspired me to focus on my MSc research that I did. So are you allowed to talk about it much or do you have to keep very quiet? <laughs> no, no, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, it hasn't been, uh, of course, I just finished this dissertation. It hasn't been published in anything. Um, I'm looking into possibilities for publication. It's going to take me time, but I'm happy to share a little bit about Please. the study and what I found. Yeah. Um, so I, Well, the title of my dissertation and what I focused on was the relationship between reproductive coercion, psychologically abusive environments, and the extent of group identity and a sample of those who've left cultic groups. So in a nutshell, what's really interesting is when we look at the topic of reproductive coercion in the literature, um, and maybe I should define what reproductive coercion yeah, is to, to start yeah, with. Um, reproductive coercion is defined as a behavior that interferes with the autonomous decision-making of a woman with regard to reproductive health. This may take the form of birth control sabotage, pregnancy coercion, or controlling the outcome of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And that was a quote by Grayson Anderson, 2018. Um, so, What's really fascinating is the majority of research surrounding reproductive coercion focuses on the intimate partner uh, as the primary source of reproductive control. Mm. However, the phenomenon of reproductive coercion um, 
which I argue needs to be approached with a more flexible lens when examining the many experiences of those who've left cultic groups, um, which can be considered nuanced threats or mechanisms that cults use for control. Um, so for example, reproductive coercion may present itself in cults um, from theological beliefs, which can result in spiritually driven reproductive control. Or it may extend beyond an intimate relationship, the immediate partner or family member, to include a cult leader. A cult leader can tell you when or when not to get pregnant, what mm. kinds of birth control to use, for example. It can have a major impact. Mm. Or there could also be cultural factors that are significant in creating group ideological beliefs that can impact reproductive autonomy and sexual well being. So, what I try to I guess, contribute to the research overall is in the scientific literature, studies on reproductive coercion have primarily existed in healthcare clinics, which is great, you know, surveying women's needs who frequent these healthcare settings. Mm -hmm. However, that's provided a very narrow view of what reproductive coercion is and where the source originates from, which is typically a male intimate partner, for example. And when you look at cults, which can be considered a hard to reach population in the mm -hmm. research literature or a hidden population. Um, you know, many cults don't frequent medical settings. They're this sort of stigmatized and marginalized population that isn't being accounted for in the research literature. And so, you know, where people are gathering this research isn't hitting this population. So I designed a questionnaire um, that took three um, different measures. Um, the psychological abuse experiencing group scale, um, the extent of group identity scale, and the reproductive autonomy scale, um, which I adapted. And I put out a call for participants within the network for people who were involved yep. in cults. Um, to participate, people had to be 18 and older. Um, they had to identify as female during their time in the group. Um, and that is uh, specifically worded as such so that those who have maybe transitioned since leaving the group um, could still participate. They identified mm -hmm. as female then. And um, they had to have indicated that they experienced, um, you know, interference with their reproductive health and well-being. Mm -hmm. um, because all this can exist on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And what's amazing is I had 99 participants um, I cut it off right at 99 because I was impatient and I wanted to get writing. <laughs> but uh, I should have waited for the 100, but 99 is fine. Uh, and 50% of the participants were born and raised. Were born and raised, which was great. It was a great yeah, sampling of born and raised experiences. Mm -hmm. um, some of the conclusions that came out of that study... I'm just hitting like some of the really broad points yeah. uh, for you guys. But some of the conclusions indicated that participants who were born and raised may have experienced reproductive coercion very differently than those who join groups, which yeah. is really interesting. It's almost yeah. like we need an adapted measure for those who were born and raised in groups to assess reproductive coercion um, versus those who join groups later yeah. on. So that was very fascinating. Um, and what's also interesting is those who were born and raised in the subset that I studied, they scored very low on the extent of group identity measure. In other words, 
those who join cults later on in life or at any time put more of an extent um, of their identity in a cultic system. Uh, this was a study developed by Rod Dubrow Marshall, actually, and he wanted to measure, um, you know, what, how much, I guess, like how much sway is someone's um, identity in a cultic system? How much are they aligning themselves with the cult's beliefs, mm. leadership, mm. ideology? And so born and raised scored significantly low on that scale. Um, there wasn't as much of an extent of group identity, mm. which was very interesting um, compared to those who joined groups. There was very interesting statistics that came out on surrounding topics involving consent, um, who had more power um, over people in specific instances. So I kind of just treated this as exploratory research in this arena um, because this hasn't this hasn't been studied. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's really a huge area, mm. isn't it? There's um, it's a huge I'm sure area. You could, I'm sure you could research this forever. Sounds <laughs> it's like a huge a PhD area. In there. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very, it's very timely. I mean, uh, the whole free Britney movement Mm -hmm. with Britney Spears and this, Mm -hmm. um, abusive conservatorship she was under, um, from her father, she, you know, was like headlined this article and it was, um, you know, it shouldn't take someone like Britney Spears to get us talking about reproductive coercion. And it's true. Um, It's a relatively new phrase originating only in like 2010 from the literature. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of talks right now with the Me Too movement, uh, for example, that massive hashtag trend um, that a lot of women participated in Mm -hmm. with the Free Britney movement. There's a lot of talks about, oh, and then of course, Texas and it's, abortion ban and what was going on with that. There's, there's a lot of talks about women's, um, I guess, right to healthcare and some of the things that may influence or interfere with their reproductive health and well-being, whether that's from a partner, a religion, or at a state or government level. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Cause I think, um, I mean, obviously, uh, something else that uh, gets talked about often is um uh women when they want if they want to have their tubes tied being told they aren't allowed to do that um yeah. until they reach a certain age or needing um you know husband's permission to come in and say oh yeah it's fine um <laughs> so that's definitely something that's important um just yeah it's such a huge topic like you said it's spanning um so far um and and um yeah, I mean, in, in England, it's only just become mandatory that consent is taught in sex education, that consent wasn't even on yeah. the syllabus. Mm. Um, so the fact that in, you know, wider society, we're not talking about it, it you know, then what about like these groups where it's, yeah. um, you know, e- even more concerning it is a conversation that needs, you know, blowing open in yeah. all avenues. <laughs> so yeah, it's Cons- really cool to hear you talking about this. Yeah, consent was one of the most significant findings, I think, in my whole study was no matter if you were born and raised or not born and raised, if you had a group leader or you didn't have a group leader, um, in all instances where there was reported reproductive coercion, um, you know, for people who, I guess, spoke about or brought up that um, they were directed either from the leader or from their theological interpretations um, that they were supposed to have children or when any conversation surrounding sexual health and well-being, 
the topic of consent, according to like 80% of the participants, and I have to go back to get the exact figure, but it was around 80% mm -hmm. of the participants reported um, that consent was never, never communicated. Mm -hmm. They were never communicated right. how to go about discussing these issues. And that's significant. That's significant. Yeah. Uh, the, the other point that, that strikes me with talking about that, obviously you've, you've talked about things like, um, contraception and uh and and the right to to choose around um termination and so on but um i mean for uh, i guess at the other end of the scale for some couples that i remember you know they um when i was a jehovah's witness they they made a decision and um whether it's coercion i don't know but um to not have children because you know yeah. they um the advice from the the governing body from the from the leadership was you know try not to to have stuff that's going to get in the way of your worship of jehovah you know and, and actually having a family is gonna you know is going to be a distraction and armageddon's coming shortly you know why not wait until the new system when you know everybody's going to be perfect and you can have you know you can have your children then um and you know there have been cases of of couples that have decided not to have children on that basis you know mm -hmm. obviously time marches on and then they can no longer make that choice so yeah there's right. there's and it's really interesting. There's lots of different um, levels of, of that sort of um, sort of thing. And it's, yeah. it's kind it of it exists tragic, on really. a spectrum, reproductive yeah. interference yeah, yeah. in general, yeah. within those who experience high control settings. And I really wanted mm. to sort of elucidate here are the many factors that contribute to reproductive interference with people involved in cults or, um, yeah. you know, abusive settings such as that. It's mm. it, it really, I feel like, is an important discussion. Mm. Well, it sounds fascinating. So um, I look forward to once you've got that uh, that all yeah. marked and uh, done. I'll let um, you know. Hopefully yeah. we get to hopefully read it. Good yeah. marks. Uh, I'm hopefully sure good it marks. will be. I'm sure. <laughs> sounds really good. <laughs> it does. Um, I, I'd like to, for sort of got 10 minutes um, left, um, Ashlyn, and I, I, you mentioned about identity and something sort of pre, um, tweaked my interest massively there, which was this. Oh, sure. Um, this split between uh, raised in and people that, yeah. that were recruited. Um, so, and that, that kind of raises one of the questions that I've got a big hobby horse about, I suppose, which is the, the experience of self and identity for those who are raised within, within a group. Um, and I wonder whether that those results where people who come in seem to have a stronger identification with their group could be because for those that are raised in it, like you and me, um, mm -hmm. it's almost like you don't think of yourself in that way. It's almost as like you, yeah. you, you know, your identity is so wrapped up or was so wrapped up with that organization that yeah. it takes quite a long time to rebuild that sense of self or to not rebuild it, but build it um to some degree from the ground up um and i think that's so important and a lot of the language around cults is you know to find your go, go back to your authentic self that you had before you went into the group and of course that doesn't work for you if you've been raised in that group i, I wonder what your observations are about yeah. that whole question um well first off you got a great theory going there um <laughs> it reminds me so much of um I don't know if you've heard about conversations or writings from Jilly Jenkinson, 
um, who We've had her on the the podcast. Oh, great, 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 great. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Jilly talks a lot about mm. the pseudo cult personality, mm. um, and it's very interesting in that she points out how um, you know those who join groups surrounding the issue of identity when they leave said cult or system, it's almost like they're able to um, look back and say, okay, what are the aspects during my time in the group that maybe I enjoyed that I incorporated as part of my identity that I want to keep? And then maybe what are the aspects that they can look at before their group involvement and say, you know, those are aspects about my personality or about me that I, that I want to return to. They have that option, those who join cults, to look back at their existing selves pre-cult. And like you mentioned, Stephen, those who are born and raised have nothing to look back to. Mm. Um, it is it is everything. It is who you are. It is such a formative part of your identity. Um, so when you leave a group, it truly is like you're forming yourself for the first time. Um, and that can present its own challenges. So I really like um, Julie Jenkinson's written a great article on this, on the uh, cult pseudo personality and pseudo identity. Um, it's called Out in the World. Um, post For those looking for uh, post-cult counseling, I can send it over to you. But mm, it, just the way she describes identity um, for those who have you know joined later is just so fascinating compared to those who were born and raised i think you're on to yeah. something in other words and i think well, yeah that, <laughs> i think that's why my results were kind of puzzling but mm. also really interesting you know that born and raised didn't have they scored low on the extent mm. and group identity scale um and there could be a lot of reasons for that you know it could have been the population subsample mm -hmm. i also think though that when you're born and raised in a system you may not even realize, uh, I guess, like like this concept of identity. When someone joins cults, it's very clear that there is yes. this very sort of alignment with said system, yes. with said belief, with said leader. Mm -hmm. But those who have just always existed in a cultic environment may not even see it, I guess, as yeah. as an identity thing, or as just it's, you know, so it I is am. what it yeah, is. I, so I don't know. Yeah, I think that's, it's, it's hard that's to right. say. Um, it's uh, yeah, I think that's that's uh, obviously it's just a, just an idea, but um, that that could be part of it. I mean, it's 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 something that I um, so I'm really looking forward to to being a speaker at the next conference. By the way, Yay. so um, so that's uh, I, and I'm going to talk about my research um, that looks at that at least partly about oh, how great. how um, ex members um, construct their identity and what what I. What I found was, I mean, it's a very small sample. It was qualitative work, so it's um, you know, it's not quite the same sort of um, work that you did. But um, just looking, talking to the people that that I did on that study, it seemed like they were able to sort of cobble together, if you like, their um, their identity by finding things that they were they could identify that they are now and identifying what they were like. Yeah, during their time in the lines. group yeah mm -hmm. and so they could mm -hmm. tell a story um of themselves you know so um there's there's one of my participants he ended up being uh well he he started off as an elder 
um, as a Jehovah's Witness elder. Oh, yeah. Um, but he used to love giving talks, and, and but he was very funny. He was... He used to love uh, making everybody laugh. Um, and then when he left, he became um, a stand-up comedian. Um, and he can tell a story about, you know, well, actually, when I was an elder, I used to love doing these talks that made everybody laugh. And and that's actually, I'm kind of still doing that, or I, I did it when I left. So it's, I think it's, that's part of the work that I think goes on for us when we leave is identifying those bits that we can then create a story that that makes sense for us as we as we try to understand who we are but I think it's a it's a long process um, and yeah. I only interviewed people that had left 10 years or more and I, I think there is a an element that you need a bit mm. of time to do it so um, like we're talking about interjects as well weren't we um this idea yeah Julie like, was talking about interjects yeah yeah, yeah so the idea of like yes chewing yes. things up right and seeing if oh i love i love right, how yeah. julie talks about chewing things digest <laughs> i love these like very um it really kind of, sort of things. yeah, yeah. yeah I, I don't really know how to describe it but visceral. uh chewing it over it is visceral thank you that's what i was looking for um but she did um her talk um that i just mentioned it's mm. on the icsa youtube channel i'll send you guys over a link it's very okay. interesting cool on interjects yeah. and these sorts of concepts. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's she's really interesting to talk to. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that was definitely interesting. Yeah, when we're talking about the the finding what's still you, or what you still think, sort of process. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a, the thing is, it's a it's a slippery concept anyway. I mean, um, you know, it's a it's a philosophical question about self and me and I and so on as well. It's like it's one of those questions that I think everybody struggles with to some degree you know because we all have our own what we might consider our our personality but then we behave differently in different situations and so on so psychologists have struggled with this and philosophers have struggled with it anyway and it just makes it more complicated when you're coming out of a controlling group I think but um, it's a fascinating subject so um, before we before we finish um, Ashlyn what what have you got coming up that you're excited about? Uh, well, a couple of things. Um, our, if you're in Portland, Oregon, which I don't know how many of those listening are in Portland, Oregon, but if you're in Portland, Oregon, um, please check out our Spiritual Abuse Forum for Education meetups. Mm-hmm. On March 4th, actually, I will be presenting on the Power Threat Meeting Framework um, and helping just from a psychoeducational point of view mm-hmm. to highlight one framework that you can use to sort of help you examine your own story and context. Um, with ICSA, uh, related projects. We have our large um, annual conference coming up uh, June 24th through 26th. So I've been working on that. And if you want to see Stephen present, um, <laughs> that'd be really great. Uh, come support hey. Stephen. And um, <laughs> yes, yeah, come support Stephen. And um, in terms of personal projects, you know, now that uh, my MSc is hopefully yeah. completed, if I get those good marks, everybody <laughs> hope for me that I get good marks. Absolutely. Um, I've awesome. been doing more and more. Um, uh, consulting. I've been working on um, just intervention type work, which has been just so rewarding. And mm-hmm. I love dealing with mediation, conflict resolution, um, surrounding those, understand people's uh, complex experiences involved in mm-hmm. groups. Um, I've been training quite a bit with uh, Pat Ryan and Joseph Kelly with Intervention 101. Great. And they've just been wonderful mentors uh, for me. And so I've been able to take on more consulting, which has been just such a, awesome. such a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. And somewhere yeah. well, between that you like sleep. 
<laughs> Somewhere in between that, there's sleep. Um, and I have a blind, I have a blind dog, so he keeps oh. me busy. Um, there's, there's, there's always a lot going on, but always good things. You know, I, I'm very fortunate um, to have a great home environment. You know, here to sort of decompress with everything yeah. going on. These are hard topics, so that's really important. Absolutely, they yeah. are. Yeah, no, absolutely, it's true. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, um, yeah. I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, Ashlyn. Thank you so much mm-hmm. um, for joining us today. Ashlyn Hilliard. Thank you. You too. It was a pleasure. What should I think about is an Evil Sheep production. 